Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. WJFF Studios in Liberty, New York. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, foie gras, the years-long battle to ban the delicacy in New York City rages on with duck farmers here in Sullivan County, animal rights activists, and more fighting the band. We get a special report from our very own Patricio Rubio. He visits one of the two Sullivan County farms that are the largest producers of foie gras in the United States, and he speaks to animal rights activists about why they think a ban is necessary. Plus, divided dial. How did the American right come to dominate talk radio? Later today, On the Media kicks off a three-part series about the rise of the right on the radio. And this morning, Radio Catskills' Jason Dole gets a preview from the series producer. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. U.S. skier Michaela Schifrin has won her 87th World Cup, a world record. NPR's Amy Held reports today's win in Sweden is just the latest laurel for the most successful alpine skier in history. Michaela Schifrin has more firsts attached to her name than any other alpine skier in history. Steadily knocking down titles over the course of her career, Saturday in Sweden was no different. She prevailed by hundredths of a second over the second-place finisher in the giant slalom event. One day after she tied the historic mark set by Swedish great Ingemar Stenmark in 1989. And 12 years to the day after Schifrin's very first World Cup race in the Czech Republic at age 15. She would win it by age 17 at the same Swedish spot where she plowed through the world record Saturday. Now at age 27, the double Olympic champion is still looking ahead. Winning six slaloms this season alone, she has three more races at next week's World Cup finals. Amy Held, NPR News. In the U.S. West, where a 10th winter atmospheric river event has arrived, heavy rain is beginning to melt lower parts of a huge snowpack in California's mountains. In the Sierra Nevada, where about a third of California's water supply originates, snow levels are more than 180 percent of the historic peak average seen in early April. At lower elevations, this additional round of rain brought heavy flooding to the San Francisco Bay and Oakland areas. The failure of California's Silicon Valley Bank hasn't just tanked bank stocks and raised fears of a tech recession. It's also caused a liquidity crisis for hundreds of Silicon Valley startups and venture capital firms. From member station KQED, Rachel Myro reports. A number of customers saw trouble coming in the last year and switched banks. Others are now caught out in the rain. Some reportedly can't even make payroll this week. The FDIC, which took over Santa Clara-based Silicon Valley Bank, says all insured depositors will have full access to their insured deposits no later than Monday morning. But the FDIC only insures up to $250,000. Those with more parked at the bank have to get in line with other creditors. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Myro in Menlo Park, California. Mexican authorities say they've arrested five more people in connection to the kidnappings of four Americans in Matamoros. The Americans were headed to Mexico a week ago Friday with one of them planning to have cosmetic surgery there. 
there. In downtown Matamoros, they were shot at and loaded into a pickup truck. Ultimately, two were killed before authorities located the group. U.S. Ambassador to Mexico Ken Salazar says the U.S. is very concerned about cartel violence. What we have to do is to work jointly with Mexico to address uh, the security issues uh, of the cartels. This is NPR News. China has a new premier. The country's parliament approved the 63-year-old former leader of Shanghai for the job. And as NPR's John Ruich reports, he's seen as a close political ally of top leader Xi Jinping. Li Chang replaces Li Keqiang as head of government, but it's actually the number two spot in the Chinese leadership lineup after Xi. He faces daunting challenges. China's economy grew just three percent last year, which is among the slowest rates in half a century. That was largely due to strict COVID controls that have since been lifted. But China has deep structural problems that Li will have to face, like an aging workforce, an over reliance on investment, and a property bubble. Some analysts are optimistic because Li's entire career has been in provinces along China's coast, which are. Economic dynamos that rely heavily on private industry, but others think his mishandling of the Shanghai COVID lockdown last spring was a red flag, indicating that he will act loyally to Xi Jinping above all else. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. On the densely populated island of Java, Indonesia's Mount Merapi has erupted. Avalanches of lava, along with searing gas clouds, have led authorities to halt tourism and mining activities on the slopes there. The eruption today blocked out the sun and blanketed several villages with falling ash. No casualties were reported. In the European Union, as in the U.S., just about everything is more expensive. The EU statistical agency Eurostat reports this week inflation in the 27 nations block stands at 15 percent, but its star data point is the egg, which is up 30 percent since last year. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Foie gras, French for fat liver, is the liver of a goose or duck that's been fattened through force feeding or gavage. It's creamy white, filled with fat, and has become a staple of fine dining and a symbol of French cuisine. New York City voted in 2019 to ban the sale of foie gras, arguing that the way it's prepared amounts to torture and animal cruelty. The ban was, ban was expected to go into effect at the end of last year. Instead, it set off a months-long legal battle. Foie gras farmers with state officials in France supporting them have fought the ban, saying it could put them out of business. This has set off a back and forth with frustrated animal rights activists and New York City government leaders, including the current and previous mayors. The battle over the ban has a direct impact on two duck farms right here in Sullivan County, LaBelle Farms and Hudson Valley Foie Gras. They have a near monopoly on all of the foie gras produced in the United States. In a special report, Radio Catskills' Patricio Rubio visited Hudson Valley Foie Gras Farm to find out how the ban might affect the farm and its workers, and he also talked to animal rights activists about why they think a ban is necessary. Sullivan County, New York, is home to two of the largest foie gras producers in America, LaBelle Farms and Hudson Valley Foie Gras. 
Together, these farms employ over 400 farm workers and are the largest buyers of farm goods and heating in the county. However, in 2019, the New York City Council voted 42 to 6 to ban the sale of forest-fed poultry, such as foie gras, citing the process as inhumane. A majority of New York City Council members signed on to a... And in another big move, foie gras is coming off the menu at New York City restaurants. The City Council voting to ban the uh, sale the of the French delicacy foie gras can remain on New York City menus after a ruling from the State Department. Foie gras, French for fat liver, is created by feeding the mallard duck, a combination of a pecan and muscovy duck, multiple times during a specific part of the life cycle of the duck, which causes the liver to fatten. Radio Casca was invited to visit Hudson Valley Foie Gras to talk and see the production of the product firsthand. When I arrived on the farm in Farndale, New York, I was greeted by a farm well underway in production. Forklifts were driving around, moving wooden pallets from one location to another. It was even hard to find parking with so many cars. There were so many double-wide trailers sprinkled throughout the farm. I come to find out that's where all the farm workers lived. More on that later. Not really knowing where to go, I figured the large wooden barn that looks like it had an office door might be the best place to start. I was there to meet Marcus Hanley, Vice President of the Hudson Valley Foie Gras, to talk about the lawsuit and the battle to keep the farms alive. Hey, Patricio. Hey, Marcus. Uh, I'm here at the farm. I, I just don't know where to go. I'm in one of the, the buildings. Where are you? Following the passage of a local law in 2019 by New York City to ban the sale of the product within the city limits, an injunction was placed on the law by the New York Supreme Court. This allowed the New York Department of Agriculture and Markets to review the local law. The New York Department of Agriculture and Markets ultimately said that the local law unreasonably restricts the duck farms in Sullivan County from operating, thus allowing the sale to continue. In 2023, New York City is continuing the fight and suing the state over that decision. In a Supreme Court filing, New York City said in a Supreme Court filing, its decision values animal welfare over a luxury food item that requires force feeding of birds. The New York City lawsuit says the process of creating foie gras leads to bruising, lesions, and preparation of the esophagus. I spoke to Marcus Hanley, Vice President of Hudson Valley Foie Gras in Ferndale at one of the main farms in the Hudson Valley about just that. If he thinks the process is harmful to his ducks, he says no. The physiology of a duck is different from the physiology of people. So putting a tube in the esophagus of a duck is not uh, is not harmful. Now, there's a perception that a smaller tube, and uh, so uh, we too use um, a, a smaller feeding tube that seems to me very not objectionable visually. But uh, what we were doing previously was not harmful to the ducks either. We've changed our genetics. We've shortened our feeding programs. All of those things that we do are beneficial to uh, the raising of the animals and also have an economic benefit. And so have we changed our process? Yes. Have we changed it because what we were doing was was not acceptable agri- animal agriculture? No. 
Hanley says if the band were to hold, his farm would lose a large portion of its sales. New York City accounts for about 25% of its total sales. Our sales are um, uh, of uh, foreground duck products would be $35 million a year, and about a quarter of that would come from New York City. So, uh, you know, a little less than $10 million for our company, and that's very significant. While we do, it, it's like we're not a small company. We have uh, 325 people working uh, between here and, and and Bethel, but but that's a significant part of, of our business. You can say, well, you just cut out 25% of your costs, but you can't cut out 25% of your overhead costs. So if we sell for a certain level, our taxes are the same. Uh, our property taxes, real estate, the, the maintenance of the infrastructure, it doesn't change. So we can cut out some of our direct costs. We won't place as many ducks. We won't have as many people. But uh, it's still very risky because of the uh, the overhead. Eventually, uh, you get to a point, and it's difficult to be profitable in, in New York State as it is, but when you take that big a bite out, you're risking the company. So um, it would be it would be a difficult situation. What do animal rights activists say about this process? Animal rights activists consider foie gras production inhumane, but the American Veterinary Medical Association stated in 2014 that force-feeding ducks is possible and that the extent of their discomfort is unclear. However, the AVMA also mentioned that capturing and restraining ducks is stressful and feeding tubes pose injury risks. Voters for animal rights support the New York City's ban on foie gras, calling it a cruel product from tortured animals. Voters for Animal Rights is an organization that helps elect candidates who support animal protection. Brian Pease, an attorney, for the voters for animal rights say yes the ducks do feel pain ducks do have a gag reflex they have uh, their esophagus is just as soft and susceptible to injury as a human's yes they can they can expand they can swallow you know large fish and things like that but that's different than having um a, a, a long and flexible pipe just jammed down your throat and it does cause scarring it does cause injury um and it is painful for the ducks brian also says the decision from the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets is an extreme power grab. They are attempting to enforce a, a very extreme reading of the agriculture and markets law, which, which allows them to review local laws within agricultural districts. So the, the farms are within agricultural districts. And if the local jurisdiction there had passed some law that would impact the farms, NYSTAM, this agency, would be able to review those laws. But they are claiming that they can review any law anywhere in the state that could impact a farm somewhere else and that that enables them to essentially strike down laws that local jurisdictions like the city of New York pass. So hopefully the courts won't go along with this this power grab. It's, a, it's an extreme thing that our, our governor uh, in New York State and, and the attorney general are allowing NYSTAM to try to get away with and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to stop them. But local jurisdictions need to be able to retain the ability to pass local laws to protect their local public health, safety, morals, and general welfare of the people of their, of their cities. And according to Ali Taylor, president for Voters for Animal Rights, that support for the ban was overwhelming. 
of New York City voters supported this ban on foie gras. This was not something that was a fringe issue. This is something that the overwhelming majority of not only New York City residents, but the city council as well supported. The debate over foie gras production raises broader questions about the treatment of animals in the food industry and the treatment of farm workers. Animal rights activists argue that the use of animals for food, clothing, and other purposes is inherently exploitive and unethical. Hanley says if this ban goes into effect, it will significantly impact not only the farm workers, but the local economy if the farms were to shut down. If you say you can't sell something that's the product of force feeding, well, how do you separate that out of the the pet food? How do you separate that out of clothing? How do you, so that the, the economic consequences of this kind of ban are much greater than um, than than what if you lose that twenty five percent of your business? Okay, that's great. But then if the pet food people say, well, you know, uh, we can't take a chance that some of the duck bones that we used are going to be in pet products that are sold in New York City, so then you lose another section of business. It's it's just it's just not these things are not well thought through and also have no basis uh, because we don't mistreat the animals. And what about that? What do animal rights activists say if the farms have to close down due to the ban that there will be a negative impact to the local economy? Here's Ali and Brian from Voters for Animal Rights. If they have to lay off workers, it's because they have not evolved their businesses to be a sustainable business that can continue to exist, and that's on them. Um, every business has to make changes, right? It's the year 2023. We see this happening all the time. We saw this happening in technology industries. We see this happening in uh, food industries across the country. It is up to the owners of the business to make sure that they are constantly innovating and finding new ways to retrain their workers and to generate new sources of revenue that aren't entirely dependent on abusing animals. The local law 202, the, the New York City Fogger sales ban, is that is focused on the impact in the city of New York where people not wanting to be exposed to the sale of, of a product of extreme animal cruelty. New York City is perfectly entitled to make that determination for, for its local jurisdiction. As far as um, any indirect economic effects in Sullivan County, uh, no one is saying, first of all, the, the local law in New York City doesn't regulate or say anything about what the, what the farms can do in Sullivan County. They can continue doing what they're doing. They can find other markets. No one's saying they can't run an ordinary duck farm either. Um, it's just that if they want to sell their products in the city of New York, they would need to not force feed those ducks. As far as the the workers that they're claiming that they would need to lay off, that's they seem to be referring to the, the workers that actually do the force feeding, which is one of the worst jobs imaginable. It's they're abusing migrant labor that they, they bring in and deceive. There have been class action lawsuits about this. There have been op-eds in the New York Times exposing them over, over the years and, and calling on legislators to do something about the abuse of the, the workers there. Um, but you know, during COVID, when there were restaurants uh, not not open, um, they certainly they have no problem scaling up or scaling down the number of migrant workers workers that they abuse and exploit and, and have come work on, on these farms as as needed. And when the workers have tried to mobilize, they have simply fired, they, they fire them at will anyway, even if, you know, just because they try to stand up for their own rights. And there was a situation several years ago where um, they did fire all, Hudson Valley foie gras, fired all the workers because they tried to organize and then, uh, and they were just there, stuck there in the middle of nowhere with nothing, nowhere to go. And a local church had to take them into their basement. And I can refer you to a YouTube video where uh, a former state's New York State Senator went there and, and, and heard and had this told to him by some of the 
the the people there. So it's it's um yeah they don't they do not care about these workers. This is all about the only thing this is about is these farms wanting to make more profits by being able to sell an immoral product in the city of New York, which the city of New York is deemed to be offensive to public morals, health, and safety and general welfare of the people of the city of New York. Since I spoke to the voters for animal rights after visiting the farm, I had to contact Marcus regarding the allegations of migrant worker abuse. This is what he said. <laughs> so these are the people that say we mistreat our animals also, right? Yeah. As I recall, there were, uh, and again, before my time over 20 years ago, maybe a misunderstanding of the work rules in terms of uh, overtime pay or minimum wage that was uh, people were paid appropriately on a monthly basis, but not on a weekly basis, uh, which is required by New York state law. Again, this is before my time and I'm not, uh, I don't have details. What about now? The animal rights activists are saying that this is happening now. The mistreatment of the farm workers is happening now. Well, Patricia, you're welcome to come. You're welcome to come and talk to our people. I mean, that's just simply ridiculous. And New York State has very robust worker protections. There are not-for-profit advocacy groups that are resources for the workers. We even invite from time to time the Department of Labor to set up a, a table when we're doing like a, an immunization clinic. You know, we try to provide in all of the postings in English and Spanish that provide hotline numbers for the workers who have uh, wage disputes, sexual discrimination issues, all of things are, oh, those things are posted by the time clock. I mean, to say that uh, uh, the workers are, are deceived and mistreated is disgusting. Well, you understand, uh, Patricia, that these people have, from the very beginning of this, believed that the ends justify the means. They've misrepresented the farm, uh, the farming practice, and the, the, the hearing which you attended was just a litany of uh, of lies and misrepresentation. I also had the opportunity to speak to Sergio Cervera, the president of LaBelle Farms, which is the other foie gras farm located in Sullivan County. Both farms have come together to oppose the ban. I asked him about the allegations of migrant worker abuse at his farm. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, it couldn't be farther from the truth. How we treat our workers and uh, the reality of it is, as I stated down in New York City, that for LaBelle, we are those workers. You know, we came the same way they come. We were looking for the same opportunity. And these people have been working with us for 30 plus years. And we're on third generation. To say that we mistreat our workers, it couldn't be farther from right. the truth. Hector and his brothers were once migrant workers themselves, employed on a chicken farm after immigrating to America. They eventually struck out on their own and expanded to foie gras production. According to Hector, they often provide housing and support a path to citizenship for many of the workers they employ. Why? Why Why would we want to hurt anybody that, you know, this is what gets me even more. Like, okay, there's bad immigrants. Obviously, that there's, bad, there's a bad in every aspect, in every respect of life. But when you have hardworking farmers that only want to work, we go out of our way to help them because that's how we came. That's what we know how to do. 
And if you need help legal work, you need help with anything, like some of them are afraid to go to do the driver's test to get the license, the language because of whatever, because they don't, they, they're not comfortable reading and writing, whatever the reason may be. And you have my sister sitting there with them, going over all the questions, taking them to DMV, helping them. And the level of uh, like literacy is also not, you know, it's not great. And that's why they're not in a position, like if they close the farm because of this, to get jobs elsewhere. It's very difficult for them. So it's the complete, it's like that is, <laughs> could not be farther from reality in our case. We'll take a short break and come back with more of Patricia Ravallo's special report on foie gras. This is Radio Chat Skill. While engaged media consumers fret over who said what on Twitter or the latest Fox host's outrages, is anyone paying close attention to the radio waves? You have to listen to it live in order to capture what's being said. And so it just operates out of sight. Nobody pays any attention and it has so much power. This week, we're listening to talk radio. Don't miss On the Media from WNYC. Saturday afternoon at 4 on Radio Catskill. There's been a veritable cascade of recent releases recently, both from Britain and Ireland, so next week I bring you a whole show packed with new music. Please join me, Graham Rice, for the Wagonload of Monkey Show on Radio Catskill on Sunday afternoon at 3. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Let's get back to Patricia Robayo's special report on foie gras. Most of the foie gras in America is produced by two farms right here in Sullivan County. Hanley invited me to view where the ducks live and how they are slaughtered. Now this is where the chicks are or... Yes, we have in this one area, we have the youngest and the oldest. So uh, when the babies come in, these have been here for a week. Uh, we have new babies coming tomorrow. And we have a careful record of uh, if we have mortality um, so that we can, we know what is normal. We usually lose about 1%, just it's, you know, that first week where uh, you have like infant mortality. And so we record each day uh, any mortality. And if we see a spike, then we'll uh, find veterinary assistance and testing to make sure that we don't have avian influenza. Marcus Hanley opens a large wooden door that houses all the ducklings. The wooden barn where the ducklings are housed is large with the smell of corn feed lingering in the air and the sound of fans distributing warm air throughout the barns. In this one barn, over 12,000 ducklings are housed and they arrive at the farm at only one day old. They are placed in different sections of the barn where the temperature is controlled to 95 degrees on the ground. We keep them separated by age all the way through the process because it's important uh, because their needs are different at, at, at each as they age. Uh, you know, these need more heat than the ones across the room that are two weeks older. So 
or careful to keep them separated. The farm tries to mimic what a duckling would need in the early stages of its life. For the first week, we provide those water drinkers on the floor, and, and it's a shiny liquid, and they look at that, and with the seeking behavior, they're gonna stick their, they're gonna stick their beaks in, and they say, oh, this is nice, and, uh, and they learn to drink. And then, as we go through the week, those lines are called nipple drinkers and there's a little nipple and this is it's held down with a spring a, a very uh, loose spring and so there'll be a bead of water and they'll go and they'll peck at the bead of water which pushes up this the, the spring and water fills their mouth so instead of a common basin which is not as sanitary as we would like the ones that are two weeks old, they don't have the drinkers anymore. They're, they're strictly drinking from the nipple drinkers. So it's very sanitary. Uh, it's the way that poultry is raised and it helps across the, 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 the poultry industry, chickens especially, uh, to keep mortality low and our prices low. The ducklings are in the nursery for about four weeks and then they are moved to another barn and they stay there until they are ready to begin the force feeding process just after eight weeks. The growing barn is another large wooden barn where I saw hundreds of ducks in various stages of growth. It was a sea of ducks. And these ducks are not like the ones you see at your local pond. These are large, almost goose-like in appearance. The barn appears much like the other barn, large, dusty, but with the smell of feed lingering in the air. Area is currently experiencing an avian flu outbreak which limits who can be in contact with the ducks. And this is done to limit the exposure to the avian flu. There are some things that we do to, to help keep them strong and healthy. Uh, we have the feed on one side and the water on the other, so they have to walk back and forth. We have an incline ramp that helps keep them uh, strong and healthy. And we have the caretakers that are here uh, taking care of uh, making sure that the litter is, is dry, the waters are working well, and uh, and you know, a nice barn, natural light. That we actually, even on the uh, coldest days, we don't have to add heat to the barn. Really? Because you have, you'll have about 5,000 ducks in this building, or on this floor, and they uh, uh, generate enough heat, uh, body heat, that um, it, it's a, there's always a little bit of... Uh, um, management of the ventilation because as you say here you don't have much of an odor um, you, you have uh, because we've separated the water from the wood shavings and the droppings you don't have that chemical reaction that creates ammonia so here we have good air. Hanley points out how the ducks are not running away from us and that's because the farm workers are around them all day. He said that's an important factor in the next stage of the process, where 11 ducks are put into a 24-foot enclosure to begin its force-feeding process for the next 21 days. And the farm worker has to climb into the cage. The ducks are fed every eight hours for about three hours, and a farm worker has to perform that within a 24-hour period. The, the people who feed the ducks are assigned a group of ducks, and they're going to carry those ducks all the way through the 21 days 
So, so the ducks become accustomed to uh, an individual, and the individual knows uh, the ducks. We have uh, assessments uh, that where we, um, the, again, the physiology of a duck is that a duck, we're not forcing food into the stomach. We're putting it into the crop, which is a, a sack that has a capacity of about a liter at the base of the throat. And so we're just dropping the food into the sack. And then, and then from there it proceeds um, through the rest of the digestive system. Right below that is the gizzard, which is a hard muscular ball. You can't force anything past that. And after 21 days, they come to the processing plant and uh, we do uh, the, the processing and the cutting of the birds. Hanley says that's the reason why many of the farm workers live right on the farm. We get back into Hanley's truck to drive over to the feeding barn. And it's when I asked him about the trailer homes and how many workers live here at any one time. He said about 100 workers. So in the summer, we have a community garden program. And then we'll also plant uh, 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 an acre or two of pumpkins and sweet corn. And so, you know, we're here to work. But, uh, but you know, those... Uh, uh, those opportunities to do something outside of work that makes you feel good and also provides nutritious uh, yeah. uh, food. Two soccer goals are set up between some of the houses where Hanley says some of the workers play after working on the farm. Hanley himself lived in one of the trailers when he made his way up from Arkansas to Ohio, then to New York. I lived in the first trailer 20 years ago. Uh, when I moved out here from a job in Ohio and my wife was still finishing school out there and um, I really enjoyed being here and the sense of community uh, that we have. Are you originally from Ohio? I'm from Arkansas. Oh wow. I've been, a, I've been around a little bit. <laughs> It'd be interesting here. How'd you make your way up to New York? Well, you're just always, you know, chasing opportunities yeah was in chicken processing in a large plant in georgia and then i came to uh i was the plant manager of a turkey processing operation uh near syracuse and i was there for uh, about 11 years and um and i did some uh consulting work uh for the government regulations uh for Hudson Valley at that time and in 2001 um, they asked me to come and be the uh, manager of operations here and it's been really uh, a great uh, um, a great opportunity and a lot of fun. Haley says the farm workers receive free medical services with a free medical clinic that's offered to them in collaboration with Christ Healthcare Ministries. Uh, purpose built uh, medical trailer, two exam rooms, uh, office and waiting room, and they have a bi-weekly uh, medical, free medical clinic, and uh, we, uh, we're uh, proud of that. And, and it's, it's for your workers? And for other people in the community. It's not, really? it's not okay. exclusive to our workers. When we enter the feeding barn, it's large like the other ones. But the major difference here, it's damp and wet. 
Hanley says the water is from constantly cleaning the barns and washing the ducks. The feeding barn is laid out in three columns with rows and rows of 20-foot foot enclosures filled with ducks. A general cleanliness is contributory um, to, a, to a biosecurity program. So we're going to have someone wash the floors on a regular basis. Also, these are ducks, and they like, uh, they like to be clean. And uh, so a couple of times during the 21 days, we uh, give them a bath. And uh, these appear to have uh, just had, had a bath. And uh, not putting them, we're not putting them in a, in, a, in a basin of water. We'll come by and, uh, and spray them with water, and then they can preen. And it's very good. But it's... Hanley shows me the plastic tube that is used for force feeding. It's about six inches long and is connected to a larger tube that leads to a large bucket of liquid feed, which is a mixture of corn and grains. We're using a very small and thin uh, tube, so it's inserted almost into the uh, uh, into the mouth of the duck rather than down the throat. Down the throat didn't matter, but if this is more uh, acceptable visually to people that come to the farm, then uh, then that's what we're doing. A flexible very thin uh, tube. We also use a uh, liquid feed. Hanley said traditionally ducks were fed a harder grain, but they found as the years went on, a liquid feed was much more gentler on the duck. But we found that uh, using a liquid feed was even more uh, perfect and gentle, and that also uh, helped us in terms of uh, improving the health of the health of the animals. I mean, it was never a problem, but it's less of a problem now. So liquid feed uh, with these very small uh, tubes. On this visit to Hudson Valley, I did not witness a feeding. I did visit another duck farm in Sullivan County a few years ago where I was able to see a feeding. That process is fast as the farm workers hold the duck between their legs and bring the duck's head up and place a tube down the throat and with a push of a button, the liquid feed goes down. The farm uses every piece of the duck except for the head and feet. The liver, of course, is made into foie gras and prepared in many different varieties. The meat is also packaged and sold and the bones that are left over are used in dog food and various other products, according to Hanley. And the feathers? They are sold to make down feather products like pillows, blankets, and coats. This is the reason for concern. Industries that depend on the byproduct of the process of Fargo will be affected if the ban goes into effect. And in Sullivan County, the duck farms help other local farms with fertilizer, made from the droppings of the ducks. Hanley said with all this attention on Fargo, it has actually made farm life better for the ducks. There's one thing I can say about the animal rights activists, okay? Um, all of this attention, we have to live, or we have, avian influenza aside, but we live like we're going to have company to come and see what we do. And, um, and the animals are certainly better off for it. Uh, we keep the farm better, 
and we take better care of the animals, I think, than uh, if we weren't expecting company every day. I mean, the, your visit here today, uh, I have every confidence in the farm, and I don't. I called the guys this morning to ask them uh, where the different ages were, and uh, but other than that, we're the same every day. Uh, one of the city council, uh, uh, they were saying, well, if you if we come to the farm, you're just going to show us. Uh, it, it's you're going to stage a tour, and it's like come without telling us. We're the same every day. Allie Taylor, president for the Voters for Animal Rights, says she doesn't have to be there in person to know that this is wrong. Um, I don't need to see assault in person to know that assault is wrong. I don't need to see theft happen or have it happen to me to know that it's wrong and it's immoral. The city council operates the same way. They don't need to see awful, immoral practices happening in front of their eyes to know that it's something that is unacceptable to New Yorkers. We head next door from the feeding barn to the slaughterhouse, where I was able to witness the final stage of the processing. Around the corner, uh, we're bringing them off the truck around the corner, and they go through the process. Uh, there's a, there's, it's called a water bath stunner, and they're uh, passed through the stunner. They come in contact with uh, water with an electrical charge, which uh, puts them to sleep so that they don't experience uh, the, the cut. And then they're going to bleed for about three minutes, and then they go into a hot water uh, bath. After the hot water bath, the feathers are removed before being hung by its neck and left to chill until the next day. The next day, the ducks are further processed. We'll take the racks out and uh, and open them and take the uh, take the liver out and then collect all of the other uh, parts and pieces. About 2,000 ducks can pass through the processing plant, and that number could increase depending on the holidays. Of course, we can work overtime on Saturdays if we need to, which we do uh, around Christmas. It's uh, our busiest time of the year. Uh, Valentine's is coming up. It's another popular uh, time to go out to restaurants and have something special. So Valentine's is usually pretty good. Mother's Day, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. But it's good to, to uh, enjoy foie gras all year round. The battle goes on as Hanley fights to keep his business open and sell his duck liver product. Meanwhile, the city of New York and animal rights activists are working to put an end to the sale of foie gras. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Rabayo. And thanks to Patricio for that special report. This is Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. This afternoon at 4, On the Media, hosted by Brooke Gladstone, is airing the first episode of The Divided Dial, a three-part series taking an in-depth look at how the American right came to dominate talk radio. The series was originally a special podcast from On the Media that debuted late last year. Radio Catskill's Jason Dole spoke with Katie Thornton, award-winning multimedia journalist and producer of The Divided Dial, for a preview.
You point something out early on in the podcast that I wanted to start with, which is maybe a lot of people aren't realizing that radio is still a thing. Uh, that it's still, a, I mean, the, this whole series is almost uh, uh, predicated upon that notion that, that radio is still a place where things are happening. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's probably not necessarily a surprise to a lot of folks who are listening today. But I do think that, you know, for, for many, many decades, there's been sort of rumors of the death of radio. I mean, even since television and cable television. Um, but radio is still very, very influential. It is, um, nearly tied with social media for how Americans get their news. Um, it is consistently ranked as one of, if not the most trusted mediums in the country. A lot of people are still listening to radio on a daily or at least weekly basis. And a lot of people, if they're listening to talk radio on FM or AM, they're hearing a lot from one particular side of American politics. That's right. So the talk talk, the talk radio dial is uh, pretty heavily skewed toward the right. That's something we sort of unpack the history of how it got that way within the series. Um, but when we released the original five-part series last fall, uh, the stats were that 17 of the top 20 talk radio hosts in the country were politically conservative. Some were very far to the right. Only one leaned to the left. Um, and, and so the, the talk radio spectrum, the talk radio dial is very much dominated by, by one side of the political spectrum. And what we look at in the series is one company in particular and sort of their rise to power on the airwaves and how they ultimately, how they went from a sort of small conservative Christian radio network into a very powerful, very far-right political powerhouse. I'm wondering how long ago did this change start taking place? Because I can think back to, like, you know, the 90s and, and Rush Limbaugh uh, railing against the Clintons. Uh, is is that kind of the origins of what you're looking at now, or does it go back further? You know, we certainly do look at the deregulation of the 80s and into the 90s, especially with, the, as you alluded to, the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Um, but we really start a lot farther back in the history. As a reporter, I have a background in public history as well. And so to me, I think it's so important to understand the sort of the long game here. And so in our historical episodes, which will be coming up on the air next week, we really go back as early as the 1920s when commercial radio was just sort of beginning in the U.S. And we we focus a lot in the sort of 1930s period when radio was very much the sort of cafe culture, as one of the interviewees, Nicole Hemmer, puts it in the series. Um, it was a place where people of a variety of different political persuasions were being heard and were sharing their opinions um, over the public airwaves. Uh, during World War II, there was actually a, a ban on editorializing on the radio. And so we then sort of follow the, the post-World War II period where we look at how, how governmental policies and regulations actually encouraged a variety of political conversations on the airwaves. Um, the idea was that in this time before television or, or before before television, before cable, before the Internet, the airwaves were inherently scarce and they belonged to the American public. They're leased to private companies. And so the government decided that those who owned radio stations had an obligation to cover controversial issues and to cover them from a variety of perspectives. And so there was a period of time when 
a variety of political perspectives were really thriving over the airwaves. These were policies that really gave a boost to people on the right in the 1950s and during the civil rights period in the 1960s and again and into the 1970s um, gave a gave a boost to more progressive voices as well. That was really rolled back in the 1980s and in the 1990s, and that deregulation has just continued into the present. I'm concerned about what I call the informational ecology, the the hmm. environment of information that Americans find themselves in. So it's almost like you're looking at like a landscape that has been severely altered in the natural world. You say, okay, can we rehabilitate this natural landscape? Is there is there any kind of steps that could be taken to do something similar for our media landscape, given that it goes as far back as you're saying? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really, a really great, great question, because clearly, if, if you're listening to this right now, there's a decent chance that you, like me, love radio. I've worked in radio since I was a teenager. I've been sort of obsessed with it my whole life. Um, and I really deeply love the medium of radio. You know, it's something that is so inherently local, um, something that is so accessible, you know, relatively accessible to produce, very accessible to consume. Um, and yet there has been this sort of domination by a handful of small companies and really by one side of the political spectrum. But I do think that there's lessons that we can draw from history. There have been, you know, there were times when decisions were made at the level um, of the federal government to encourage a variety of perspectives and a variety of experiences to be showcased on the airwaves. Um, there were also decisions that ended up limiting that variety and ended up limiting that diversity of perspective. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from history here. You know, we, we talk about how right-wing and often very far-right perspectives dominate on the airwaves. There's, of course, no argument saying that those should not be permitted on the airwaves, but we end up sort of examining how it came to be that they often go unchallenged and unrivaled, that people sort of can flip through a variety of different radio stations and hear the same thing, the same perspective sort of backed up. It almost seems as though one may have a, a sort of varied media diet, but in practice, radio listeners aren't always getting a variety of perspectives over the airwaves. So one of the things that we look at in the series is, is whether or not the sort of continual spread of of often outright falsehoods as well as conspiracy theories is legal on the airwaves or not. There are potentially some some uh, regulations on the books that could challenge the spread of these on-air falsehoods. Um, but ultimately, the law is sort of intentionally vague. I think what what might be more effective in terms of ensuring accuracy, ensuring that people are able to get a more well-rounded and diverse perspective are a variety of things. For one, the U.S., in terms of, of other countries that we might otherwise compare ourselves to, spends a very, very, very small amount on public media per person, um, you know, literally pennies on the dollar of what somewhere like Japan or or, Eng or the UK would spend. Um, you know, journalism does cost money. The sort of talk radio that we often hear on these talk radio stations that goes on for hours and hours every day is not thoroughly researched journalism. You know, uh, this series is the culmination of, of over, a, over a year of reporting and production and writing and editing and fact-checking and interviewing. And ultimately, this series comes out to just just under three hours in total in time. There are hosts who go on the air for three hours every single day. 
you know, the the amount of the difference in cost of what it takes to produce a three hour talk show versus a three hour piece of rigorously reported journalism is is huge. And so I do think that there could be some sort of distinction to be made between the sort of entertainment that people hear um, over talk radio and the journalism that is done somewhere like a public radio station. As you're talking about this, I can't help but think there are similar situations in terms of journalism overall and print media. Have you given much thought to that, to what extent uh, th this is a similar issue, just in terms of journalism not being funded? Absolutely. Um, you know, the story of talk radio's rise to influence is really the story of the hollowing out of local news media, both on the airwaves and in newspapers. Um, you know, on the airwaves in particular, the 1996 Telecommunications Act um, enabled consolidation to proceed at a very, very, very rapid clip. So before 1996, there were limits on how many radio stations a single company could own nationwide. The idea was that no single company should have too much influence to too much power to sort of shape the perspectives and influence the American people. That national limit had been increasing for many, many years, but it was completely eradicated in 1996. There was one company, um, now iHeartMedia, then Clear Channel, that went from having 43 stations across the country to over 1,200 stations. That's just in, in less than a decade. So the consolidation that happened in multiple media industries, including newspaper, but and, and certainly in radio as well, really made it more difficult for local people to be able to get on the airwaves in their local area to ensure local perspective. Um, and, and though it's not a surefire way to ensure a sort of diversity of perspective, there have been studies that suggest that local ownership as well as diverse ownership can increase uh, the variety, uh, the, the, the diversity of political perspectives that are heard on the airwaves. You know, it was a decision to do away with that policy. We're not just talking about Oh, there's there's too much of one type of political viewpoint versus another. I mean, what you're talking about in terms of right wing talk and right wing extremism uh, entering the mainstream via talk radio, this is having real implications for the governance of our country. Oh, it absolutely is. And it has been for, for many, many, many decades. Um, you know, we talk in the episodes where we explore the history, we do sort of talk about this 1980s into the 1990s deregulatory period. And one of the things that we really dive into is how certainly there was demand for content like Rush Limbaugh, for example, who, of course, inspired many imitators, but was also not the first person to do what he did, very far from it. Um, and we go into some of the people who sort of preceded him. But, you know, someone like Rush Limbaugh did not get to where he got strictly because of listener preference. There were structural advantages that he had in the market. For example, you know, two years after the 1996 uh, Telecommunications Act enabled single companies to own, you know, any number of stations that they could possibly own across the country. Two years after that passed, um, the company that ended up becoming the largest station owner in the U.S. purchased the Rush Limbaugh show. And that meant that they could very easily and for free put the show that they owned onto all of the stations that they owned. 
Um, also, even before this, you know, when Rush Limbaugh was just going national in the late 1980s, he had a pretty novel approach of syndication where the group that owned his show gave it away for free in exchange for nothing other than advertising time. That's now a pretty common practice, but it was really unusual at the time. And so there were sort of behind-the-scenes practices and policies and and well-timed uh, deregulations that enabled somebody like Rush Limbaugh to get to the top and to inspire many, many imitators. Again, of course, there's an audience for that, but it is not strictly, um, you know, it was not strictly due to audience preference. I think you already spoke a little bit about what you think needs to happen in terms of the, the radio and media landscape. I'm also wondering if there's anything else you think that should happen. And then what do you think is likely to happen? You know, in commercial talk radio, I, I think it would be a fair assessment to say that talk radio is in some ways a form of commercial speech, you know, on, on these large commercial stations. This is something that I talk about with one of the interviewees in the series, um, with somebody who we interview in the series. And there are instances where the government does demand a sort of certain type of um, rigor, a certain type of, of honesty and accuracy in commercial speech, such as in advertising. Um, and, and one of the people who we interview in the series says that it, it might be appropriate to hold commercial speech in the form of talk radio conversations to sort of the same standard of, of truth and accuracy. Um, do I think any of this is, is likely? I don't think so. Talk radio flies under the radar in many, many ways. I think it's also a somewhat... Um, class and geographically segregated medium. Uh, and so sometimes more elite media institutions are inclined to overlook it. It's also very hard to track. And it's very hard to parse, you know, a lot of what's heard on talk radio is said and gone. They don't necessarily have, you know, text searchable transcripts, it's easier to copy and paste a short tweet than it is to cull through hours and hours of conversation for something that is probably not going to be very clippable and shareable and go viral on social media. It's not very glamorous to cover. You know, there's um, there's not headshots. There's not talking heads. And so I think for a variety of reasons, talk radio continues to fly under the radar. And I think that they've sort of used that to their advantage because it is a sort of place where different political theories, dif or, I'm sorry, different political ideologies can be sort of tested out on listeners to see how people respond. And, and if you listen to talk radio very frequently, you can sort of hear hosts trying out sort of different, uh, different thoughts, different perspectives, different ideas, and you can hear people call in and hear how they respond and how, uh, it, it, you know, this sort of changes what the talking points come to be. In many ways, it's a very democratic medium. It's very participatory. You know, you can call in, you can, you can hear other people's perspectives, you can hear people challenge radio hosts, you can hear radio hosts challenge people back. Um, and I think in that there's a lot of potential, you know, being able to reclaim some of the inherent localism of radio, and being able to sort of participate in the democracy that radio can in theory be and has historically been, um, could bring us back to, I think, some of some of the power of radio. All right. That's great. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you for the, the work that you've done on this series. We look forward to hearing it uh, on on the media. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason. And thanks for talking with me about it. It's Radio Catskills. Jason Dole speaking to Katie Thornton, the multimedia journalist and producer of The Divided Dial. It's a three-part series airing this afternoon on On the Media. That's this afternoon at 4.
And another program reminder tomorrow on Shelf Life, Aaron Hicklin's guest is NPR's Ari Shapiro. You might know him as the host of All Things Considered and maybe as a singer with Pink Martini. He's also a first-time author. His new book is The Best Strangers in the World. And tomorrow he talks to Aaron about two of his favorite books. Listen to Shelf Life tomorrow at noon, on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, or at wjffradio.org. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Broadcasting from our studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.